Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery. I'm excited to have Ahana Banerjee, who's the CEO of Clear App, which is an all-in-one debit card, social app, and a database for skincare. Clear App was a part of Y Combinator uh, when the 2021 batch, uh, and it differed to a summer demo day. Uh, um, Ahana is uh, a graduate of Imperial College, London, and has been building Clear since uh, January 2021. Uh, welcome to the show, Ahana. Thank you, Rohit. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to chat more with you and uh, and share more about the journey so far. Yeah, no, uh, th- this is very interesting because you're uh, one of the younger founders who've come on the podcast. Uh, uh, you know, how did you how did you get your start into uh, into startups, and why did you want to build Clear? Yeah, so for me, you know, when it came to thinking about what career path I wanted to take. It was all about having something impactful, which is why I chose to do a physics degree in the first place, because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm good at this and this is where I can add value in the field of scientific research. But actually, once I got to university, what I realized is that academia is only one part of what brings an idea to life. And I had all these other skills, you know, even from school, I've always been the type of, of student who liked a lot of different things. I loved English. I loved my philosophy lessons, but I also loved maths and physics. And so I found that the physics degree very, very single focused. And so basically just started really thinking long and hard about, okay, given that I don't think my impact will be through science, what can it be through? And the more and more I looked into it, the more I realized that it's actually a lot of the times it's the big companies who dictate cultures and how people live their lives. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have an impact in that sense. So then the next question became, well, well, how do I do that? And so the first sort of point for me was just to establish basic professional skills and test out different career paths. So the first internship I did was in software engineering, Um, liked parts of it, didn't like other parts of it. So then tried out uh, investment banking, finance, also liked parts of it. Uh, And, you know, there are also parts of it that are less attractive. But continuously throughout university, while I was doing these internships, I was always working on my own side projects and always felt this inexplainable sort of pang of jealousy when my friends had their own startups. And and I, I couldn't really rationalize why it was. But I think it was just that deep down, I really wanted to work on something of my own and I knew it fit my skill set really well. I liked having a really diverse day job where I'm doing lots of different things and having that direct impact. So it was always my dream to have my own startup. Um, I thought that I would maybe work for a couple of years and then the opportunity would come. But, you know, it was very fortunate that the, the YC opportunity came halfway through my final year of my physics degree. And when it did, um, you know, I ran and jumped to the opportunity straight away. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I'm a big fan of Side Hustle. Uh, you know, this podcast is, is a result of Side Hustle. And, uh, you know, how how is your experience in Imperial College, uh, you know, studying and, you know, building the product at the same time? Were, were you uh, involved in academics as well as building the product at the same time? Yeah, so, I mean, I I did my degree, thankfully, to, to my parents. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't upset them too much. So I did um, complete my, my bachelor's. I dropped out halfway through the master's degree. Um, but, you know, Imperial, is it's a fantastic university, but what I would say is it's very, very academic. So there is a huge focus on grades and on, you know, especially in the early years, it's not, I would say, the most career driven. It's very much about, you know, your understanding of the field that you're studying. And unlike a lot of my physics peers, 
you know, I had all these other interests and not to say that, that my friends didn't have interests, but they were very, very focused on physics and they absolutely loved doing the problem sheets and, and spending extra time reading textbooks. I don't learn that way. I'm a very conceptual learner. And the way that I think the teaching is done in Imperial is that creates fantastic academics. And I am not an academic. I think that's that's really what it came down to. So, you know, in, in hindsight, I do wonder sometimes if I would have maybe thrived more at a US university where there's a lot more diversity in the types of, of things that you study and you can ch chop and change because university physics was not what I imagined it to be at all. On the flip side of that, I don't think I would have been challenged as hard as I was by my degree. And, and don't get me wrong, it was it was a real challenge even just to get the two one grade that I did to be able to get a decent grad job. It was it was really, really hard for me. But what it taught me was immense resilience. And it also taught me when, you know, that that interesting balance of when something's not worth it anymore, which I think is very prevalent to startups. When you feel like you're trying your level best, you're feeling burnt out and when to call it. I think my experience on my degree taught me that, you know, I'm not an academic. I am working so hard and it's just that the results aren't showing. And that's also why when I started working on startups or did more sort of career driven things, that's when I felt like I was thriving. And that's how I knew that that was the right path for me. And, you know, rather than, you know, trying to, to force myself into something that wasn't the right thing for me, I just tried to look at what my strengths were. I got what I needed from my degree. And it taught me a lot of really valuable skills and also valuable, you know, hard skills like coding, which I couldn't have built my app if I didn't have the skills that I learned from my degree. Um, but I think in terms of a more broader personal development, that came from me seeking opportunities outside of my studies rather than from the degree at Imperial. Got it. And, uh, you know, you, you're building a, a, a fintech uh, product, which is also like a social app and a database for skincare. Um, how, how are users using uh, cashback for skincare uh, retailers? Uh, I, uh, I've worked in a SaaS product where we were redeeming, you know, vouchers. But mm -hmm. I, I was interested in, you know, how how can users use this app uh, to uh, to get cash back? Exactly. So so users can get cash back if they sign up for the clear debit card. So this is currently in a closed pilot, uh, okay. just ten of our US users. But we will be rolling this out in the coming months. Um, and and the way you do it is super simple. You download the app. It's totally free. And uh, the debit card is managed from within the app. Now, through Clear, you know, if, if you go on the app, you'll see lots of products, lots of retailers. If you just click on the, the, you know, their website, we can track where you've come from. We can autofill your card details. And the way it'll work is, let's say you're buying a cream that costs $10. You'll pay for it with your Clear card. You'll pay the $10 and then you'll instantly see about $2 back in your account straight away. So the cashback rates are still what we're in the process of, of confirming. Um, and for full transparency, the, the reason for that is because the smaller indie brands give us better rates than the, the much larger retailers, but we want to work with both to begin with. So we're using the, the smaller brands to effectively subsidize the, the larger retailers who have more leverage to give the user a consistent experience where they're getting consistently cheaper products than they would from anywhere else. Got it. And, uh, you know, it's always difficult to, to get to your first thousand users, but how, how do you get to your first thousand users? Yeah. So I think this is really where building in a space that I have been so deeply affected by was very useful. So, I mean, me and my skin has not been a, a very straightforward journey. I have had acne since about the age of sort of 13, 14 
spent literally every day of the last 10 years on these online skincare forums, on Facebook, on Reddit, watching YouTube videos, on Instagram, trying to learn about what could work for me. And I also see my GP, I'm on acne medication at the moment, and so very much still in my own skincare journey. And being on these groups was really helpful, one, in terms of figuring out what it was that people wanted in terms of a product and having access to people, but also for kind of building in public as well. So just sharing with these forums that I already had kind of a presence as myself on because I've been an active user for so many years, just sharing what I'm building, you know, like, hey, I've been part of this community for a long time. I've noticed that Facebook is awesome, but you can't do X, Y, Z. You can't find people with skin like you. You can't see what they're actually doing in their daily routines. And I've built this app to help address that. And doing that really helped get that initial growth. Just reaching out to the the strangers effectively on these existing skincare forums was how we got started. And actually, the next thing that we tried, which was really successful, was um, we launched a Skinfluencer Challenge. So what this was, was reaching out to micro-influencers in the field, uh, people between one to 5,000 followers on TikTok and Instagram. And we just said that if you can bring 100 of your existing followers onto Clear, we will give you a verified badge. And what this will mean is, one, you get the social credit from it, but two, you can monetize your product recommendations on Clear through affiliate links. And the reason that was exciting for these micro-influencers is because they are too small to approach the brands directly. But because we control the affiliate relationship, we can give them the 2% affiliate fee that the influencers get. And hence, they can start to monetize on our platform as another way of bringing them you know, to us and bringing their, their followers as well. And it also makes, means that they're adding content and, and making the app more lively by joining it. So this worked a lot better. So I was just DMing anyone and everyone who was vaguely into skincare. Um, and this worked really well. Now what we're seeing is much more actual kind of organic growth, especially since I've been out fundraising and I haven't had the time to message people or actively try and get users. We fully just kind of sat back and watched what's happened. And actually really interesting things have happened. So for example, people are screenshotting their diaries and just sharing it on the Facebook groups as a way of saying like, hey, look at the products I use or what do you think of my routine? What could I do differently? And simultaneously, we have a network of dermatologists referring their patients to clear because they're interested by the fact that, you know, patients who see their dermatologists often waste time in the consultation, scrolling through their camera roll, trying to find their progress pictures, trying to articulate what products they've been using, but they don't remember the names or how when they started using them or all of those pieces of key information. With Clear, it's all in one place. So we just built this very simple export routine to PDF button and it will email it to a dermatologist. But that created one more cycle of, of references. So moving forward for us in our own product roadmap, we're looking at these more intrinsically viral features that don't cost us anything, but will help get us those organic referral links and, and not referral links, just organic referrals. Um, and so that's really our focus for the, for the next couple of months. Interesting. And, uh, you, know, you know, when I was working startups, I, I realized that, you know, you, you cannot just focus on one distribution channel, but, uh, you know, what, uh, you, you mentioned about, uh, you know, reaching out to micro-influencers and, and you're also tapping into the U.S. market, but what, what are the customer acquisition channels which have, be, which have been successful for you? Yeah, so, so I mean, really the, the ones that I've mentioned have been the successful ones. The one interestingly, the, the one that hasn't been successful that I was surprised by was working with more established influencers um, in the field. I've always heard about influencer marketing 
And I was also determined to not pay for influencer marketing to begin with, just because, I don't know, I think it's the student mindset. We bootstrapped the app, even though we'd raised the money, we just didn't want to spend it in case, I don't know. I, I think we wanted to do a lot of the validation before we started spending money. So we um, found this amazing Russian uh, photographer. She has a million followers on Instagram and she agreed to work with us for free. She did an entire series of photography work promoting our app. She's pinned it to the top of her Instagram and it got us about 12 app downloads. So that was pretty shocking to us, given how large her following was, how low the engagement and just the engagement to, to her kind of advert like promotion of what we were doing. And so we tried again with a smaller influencer, but still like reasonably large. She had 25K followers. And again, the conversion rate was just so low. So that was actually why we started the Skinfluencer Challenge. Even though I did all this work to try and beg and plead with these larger influencers to work with me for free, the result just wasn't there. But I think the micro-influencers are much hungrier to succeed because it's such a difficult market to succeed in. And with us being a new platform, it's really giving them the chance to, you know, get in early. And I think that resonated a lot with them who were trying to, you know, start their careers and, and hence why that worked a lot better. Got it. And, uh, you know, building a community is, is always uh, difficult, but, you know, what has been some of the biggest lessons and, uh, you know, what, what do you think uh, you've done it, done right and what have been the mistakes while building such community? Yeah, so I think what we've done well is trying to figure out how do people currently like interact with skincare and how do people interact with the skincare community online today? And one of the key things that, that we noticed was that, you know, the, the key factor behind a purchasing decision is seeing what somebody with skin like you is actually using day in, day out. So then that became our question. Well, how do we get that data in front of people? Now, simultaneously, I myself and others keep pen and paper skincare diaries where they log which products they're using when they use a new product. They take pictures in their camera roll of when they, they've, uh, you know, how their skin's changing with time. And so given that people were already tracking their routines and we could easily make a tracking app where you can just do that in one place and that people want to use social media to discover which products to use, but there is no easy way of finding someone else with, let's say in my case, oily, acne prone skin of color, how do I see what someone else with that exact skin type is actually using consistently? You can't, right? Like it's really difficult to do. But given that we are collecting that routine data and we found people aren't comfortable sharing their unflattering progress pics, but they are okay with sharing their product logs. So we can make that info public. And that's exactly what we did. So that's how the community is built. It's very similar to sort of Strava in the way that, you know, people log their bikes, their, their bike rides or their runs and then share it with the community. It's similar to, to, to that on Clear. So you could say that it's kind of Strava for skincare. And then on top of that, you know, we, we try and build in some of the things that people are already doing on other platforms, like answering questions, reviewing other people's routines. But I think this also links into the bits where we could definitely do better. And again, links into our product roadmap is that the engagement on our app is dominated by routine logging rather than content creation. So what my, you know, my, one of my biggest challenges for the next couple of months is figuring out, well, I've seen other people do this. I know that 
it's possible to move people from one platform to another in the skincare space because there's an app called Picky that does it well. Now they just do the content creation and they do a ton of really cool giveaways. And the app is a little bit clunkily designed, but overall they've proven that thesis that the skincare community is active and can move platform if it offers a slightly more tailored experience. So given that, we are looking to make our feed a bit more active and there's very clear solutions to, to this problem as well. So for example, our reaction system is much more like a Facebook or LinkedIn where you can thumbs up, but we want to make it a more Reddit style where you know you get social credit for posting and you're incentivized to do so. You know, we have we see on influencers reviewing followers' routines so much easily than them. So it's, again, looking at these sorts of things that are happening on other platforms and trying to bring them to clear to begin with, but centering it around the routine tracking and sharing. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing instructions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan. Uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, Anna, you, uh, you, you're looking at payments, data, and content uh, yeah. to help our customers. Uh, how, do you, how do you look at, you know, product decision-making at Clear? What, what comes first when you're trying to, you know, make decisions? Yeah, so in, in terms of our own um, product, we have a very clear goal of what we're trying to do, which is change the way the skincare industry works with social media content, payments, and data. But to get data, you need people. And to get people spending money, you also need people, which is why for us in this early stage, it's community first. We want to build up the number of people on the app and the app engagement. And the debit card and the sort of entering the payments field is a nice way of doing that. So there's a couple of reasons for doing a debit card. Um, but one of the key ones is it, it enters us into the payment flow, because if we have people buying their skincare with their clear cards, what we can do is we can offer the skincare brands a clear business bank account. And because it doesn't cost us anything to process that transaction, we can undercut the existing payments processes, um, giving us a competitive advantage for the brands to join our platform. And then longer term, we move from an affiliate model to a more retailer model. So emulating something closer to what Beauty Pie does. The reason we're not doing that to begin with is because we want to grow quickly. And if we want to deal with logistics, warehousing, fulfillment, that will take time and a lot of money. And we don't have time. Um, and hopefully we'll have some money soon. Um, but the, so, so the idea is we wanted a lightweight solution to get this off the ground. And the affiliate model gives us a means to an end and the debit card starts to insert us into the payments flow. So the priority for the next two years are, are those three things, app, in, app downloads, app engagement, and converting social users to debit card users. But the other nice thing about the card is that it's giving people real monetary value. I mean, Beauty Pie attracts customers purely based on that discount element. So it's one more draw to help grow that community and help us with that first KPI of getting more app downloads and visibility. So that's the short-term goal. Then sort of the more five-year plan is more focusing on the payment side. So that's when we start the payments processing. That's when we move from affiliate model to retailer model in the background and we target the wholesalers rather than the, the brands and the retailers. 
And then the more 10 year plan is on the data side, because then we built up a really big data set. And that's both on the cosmetic formulation side, because we can see, you know, exactly which ingredients people are using on their faces and how their faces have changed over the last 10 years from using those ingredients. And we can also see the data for the brands that's really useful of you know, when are people using their products? What is a product's retention rate? Because how does a brand measure that today? They have no idea if someone buys a product and then stops using it after one day, do they use it in the morning, in the evening? So then, you know, that there's there's a lot of value in that data as well. And at that point, um, hopefully, again, we'd have made a, a couple of hires who can help us process that data and, uh, and, and make something useful out of it. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely like how you had the uh, the, the goal and timelines of, uh, you know, for two years to, to 10 years. And, uh, you know, when, when do you think is, is the right time to add uh, more products? Uh, did you, did you decide to focus on, uh, building the community first or, you know, when did you really decide to add on more products to, uh, to, to your, uh, clear up? Yeah. So, so, I mean, again, it's all right now about the community. So that the FinTech product in particular, is you know it's it's a test to see if it works if this business model can work for us but it's also one more way as i said of growing the community because that in itself might be the draw if people don't care about logging their routines if we messed up on that thesis or if people don't want a social media community and these are all things that we do think people want but let's say that they didn't it's also a way for us to test something and see if it works or not so even with the debit card you know we found the most lightweight cheap solution that we could we tested it in a 10 person pilot. We think it's going to work, which is why we're rolling it out to our wait list. But we're very, very methodical when we make these decisions um, and, and, and we look at the data. So I think this, this, you know, this is where the physics background does come in helpful because we don't make decisions without really testing the thesis and really speaking to our customers. Because, you know, in a previous company that, that, that me and my co-founder, we were both working on. We did not talk to a single user. And when it came to building a product, you could tell we hadn't spoken to a single user. So with this time around, that's one of the biggest things that we are crazy about is making sure that we are testing every decision we make and every hypothesis. Yeah, no, absolutely makes sense uh, to to speak to the customer and ensure that you're able to solve the problem for them. Exactly. uh, and you know, uh, you, you've been uh, working on on the product. What has been uh, you know the biggest challenge to to scale? Uh, is it is it uh, you know uh, raising capital or hiring a high quality team? Yeah, so I think raising capital for me has been my biggest challenge. And, and in all honesty, you know, being a founder was my dream job, as I said at the beginning. But being fully transparent, fundraising has been the part that I have enjoyed least. Um, I think that it's something where, you know, with, with the rest of the company, I've never felt like my age or my background has been a disadvantage of anything. I felt it's been a massive advantage in terms of, you know, building the product, knowing what the users want, even in terms of hiring, figuring out how to get the best talent, because I myself was applying to these same grad jobs. I've just done the grad schemes and understand what makes a good internship and a bad internship and a good manager and a bad manager. So I actually felt like all of that put me in a really good position for the day-to-day business stuff, you know. But for fundraising, I think it's a very different ballgame. I think that a lot of it comes down to understanding the mentality of investors and and VCs and some of the dynamics and what the the decision-making mechanics are, which 
you know, truth be told, now I reflect on it. I think I came into a bit naive. I thought, you know what, we've got such a cool business. We've done everything like with no money. Our numbers are great. Like the idea is great. Like we've done so much in such a short amount of time. But, but I realize that's not always enough. Oftentimes it is about building that trust with investors. And I think for me, potentially it's being early on in my career. You know, I'm a new name to many. And of course, don't get me wrong, there's many fantastic people who have taken a chance on us. But equally, when I talk to some, you know, more experienced founders, I do feel like even for them, you know, the first time tends to be the hardest when you are trying to build that trust with people. So the way that I'm now approaching it is is different because when I started fundraising, it was very much that, you know, we have a great company, like who wouldn't want to invest? And if, you know, being disheartened at the end of the meeting, if, you know, we were too early stage or whatever it was, the way I look at it now is much more that I'm fortunate that at the age of 22, I get to start building my reputation as a founder because this is a long game anyway. And the good news is that at our current burn, I've raised enough for an eight-year runway already. So <laughs> the company's not going to die, um, which is which is a nice feeling. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, the, the thought process, that it's a it's like a 100-year journey. So uh, it's important to build the, the reputation and, and go long. And, uh, you know, uh, how, how do you look at adding, you know, A players in, in your team? And um, what's, the, what's the thought process about uh, adding, you know, uh, people, hustlers and generalists early in, into the team? Yes. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is just being very open minded. So something I love to do is just take the random calls on LinkedIn when someone reaches out. I try and make time for it, honestly, because some of the best conversations, people have turned into investors from those calls. People who aren't generally investors have become investors through these calls. And I think, you know, the first internship I did with a startup, it again was through a random cold message on LinkedIn. And that was my first real insight into working in a startup, which was pivotal to me choosing this career path today. Um, I just like people that go above and beyond and have a track record of doing so, whether that is just sending out a cold message or they've shown that, you know, if they're, if they're a student that they've done internships and they may not have liked everything that they've done, but they've at least tried and they've gone through the effort. They've faced some sort of rejection. I think that's super important because it will happen no matter what, especially in a startup, whether that's with investors or sending out a hundred emails to influencers and only one of them get back or reaching out to customers and they don't download the app or whatever it is. I think rejection is such an inevitable part of it and finding someone who is not afraid of that and will still reach out to you or just try their best to do something rather than assuming it won't happen. So that's something that I try and look for, which is easier said than done in practice. Unless you, I don't know. I think that's really hard to test for. Um, but what I would say is something that we did do slightly strategically when it comes to tech hiring in particular um, is that we chose a pretty funky backend language. Um, so our, our backend is built in Rust, which is a bit of a hipster coding language. But what this did is it actually made the hiring process a lot easier because the average dev does not learn Rust. It, it takes a certain type of person to want to even code in that language in the first place. So when it came to hiring a backend engineer, that was one of the easiest hires that we've made. And we found an absolutely fantastic experienced hire who, um, you know, he, 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 the funny thing is with Rust in particular is it's used in a lot of blockchain technologies. So for the people that like Rust and don't like blockchain, Clear is pretty much the only opportunity that there is, which meant that we actually had a really high quality talent pool for that specifically. So that was an interesting thing that I wasn't expecting to make the hiring so, so much easier, but it did. 
more generally, I think for me, what I like to do is work with a person for some time before committing to have them on the team. And especially, you know, with us being an early stage company, every person we have has a huge impact on the team. So for example, you know, I had another, you know, friend from school who reached out to me after five years saying she switched career path into UX design and she loves skincare and just wanted to help out. And she wasn't asking for payment or anything like that. And I, I felt bad that I couldn't pay her at the time because we were being cheap and, you know, no one was taking a salary or anything like that. But she showed her true colors. She worked with us consistently. She constantly went above and beyond. And now part of the reason I'm fundraising is so I can bring her onto the team and pay her. So I think it's just sort of working with a person, seeing their track record and uh, and, and having that trust and, and ultimately also just being a good person. I think that's another thing that can be taken for granted. You can be the most stellar at what you do, but if you cannot work in a team, then you will bring the productivity and morale down. So also just generally being able to work in a team, communicate clearly and effectively and being somewhat likable and, and agreeable, which is interesting because I know in a lot of businesses or a lot of people have the thesis that it's harder to be successful if you are more agreeable or more kind of play nice. But I think for me as a leader in my company, and, and it comes back to having that impact on what sort of a culture do I want to create? I want to try and show that it is you, you can play nice and still be successful. And so that's another thing that I try to look for in the people that we work with. No, absolutely. These are great advice for for you know founders who are looking to build uh, their the companies. And uh, you know, you, you've been part of Y Combinator, and I'm a big fan of 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 the YC community. But how was your experience? And you know, what what were some of the biggest lessons you uh, and learnings you've had from Y Combinator? Yeah. So I mean, I'll always have a soft spot for YC because they were the first people that that took a chance on on me me and my team. Um, I think the biggest learnings are just how important the community and talking to people is for two reasons. One, for, for business decisions. So, I mean, when I wanted to launch this fintech product, how is like a 21-year-old for who's just like finished her degree supposed to know how to launch a bank? Like that's not a trivial thing to do. But we talk about it with our partners. We figure out who to ask the right questions to. And they, they won't, you know, they won't tell you how to run your business. But if I have a question like, okay, I'm thinking of launching this verticalized neobanking product. Do you know anyone I can speak to? Nine out of 10 times, the answer is yes. And they can at least point you in the right direction. And you can leverage that community to understand things on the business side. But then also from kind of an emotional support standpoint, when I went into the startup, I didn't consider sort of the, the loneliness element that it's not a grad job where there's 200 people joining the cohort and you go out for lunch with your colleagues and what, whatever it is. I mean, firstly, we're a remote startup and fantastic UX designers in Australia and fabulous hires in Canada. So <laughs> be a pretty, pretty spread out lunch. Um, so, so, you know, I think that aspect was something I was less prepared for that, you know, you go through all of these emotional ups and downs through fundraising, through bad hires, through, you know, company things going wrong, through choosing the wrong banking as a service provider. All these things have happened to us. It has not been smooth sailing at all. And having that support system where you can just talk about your problems too has definitely been the, the thing that I'm most grateful for. And that's not just the, the YC partners, but also the other YC companies. That's been fantastic. Um, 
And I guess like a small other thing is just that, again, with the network, a lot of the the deals that you get through the community help in a monetary sense. So for this international hiring and compliance, we haven't had to pay anything. You know, we haven't had to pay anything for server costs, for drafting legal documents, things like that, which make a difference as an early stage startup. It reduces the pressure to some extent and uh, reduces the burn rate as well. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, I've had a few Y Combinator uh, founders have come on the board and they've uh, they've talked about the community. I think, uh, uh, you know, companies like uh, Y Combinator and, uh, uh, are, 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 are a great asset to the startup community. And, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, you, you, you're going to face uh, going forward? And, uh, you know, and what is the biggest piece of advice you want to give to founders who want to found their own startup now? I think there will be many, many challenges. What I've learned is just to expect challenges uh, from places that I didn't expect. Um, so I can't, I think there will be challenges in multiple areas. I mean, there will be challenges with hiring. There will be challenges with closing our round. There will be challenges with making the right product decisions, so to speak. There will be challenges with picking the right marketing strategy. You know, right now, as I said, we haven't spent anything on our marketing, but when we do put money into it, putting it into the right places. And, you know, as I said, the influencer marketing so far hasn't worked well. Um, we will probably run into more things like that. Another sort of marketing challenge we have is SEO. We had a name change on the day of our launch and chose a name like Clear, which is a very common name. So that's another kind of minor challenge. But these are all things that are addressable. And I don't think anything is tantamount, like no matter how overwhelming it feels. I've just learned that the most important thing is my reaction to a challenge. I should just expect that there will be challenges. And as long as I can stay headstrong and, and keep cool in a difficult situation and navigate it logically and, and one step at a time, that's how I'd, I'd get through it. So, you know, and that ties to, to what I'd say for people who are considering a career in startups or, or this sort of career path. I think my biggest takeaway is that it's really not for everyone. And that's totally okay. Like there's no shame in it. Being a software engineer was not for me. Being a physicist was not for me. And I grew up believing that's what I would be. But it is a very emotional job, I think, because you know, as much as you can try to distance yourself from your work, at an early stage startup, at least in our startup, we work 24-7. And it is hard not to associate your own success with your startup success. And as such, when things go wrong, which they always will to some extent, it's hard not to take it personally sometimes. So I think that just knowing that this is not for everyone, but if you are confident in what you're building and confident in yourself and you have that conviction and you just have that feeling that this is the right time for you, then it's worth trying because this is also the best job that you can ever have, in my opinion, if you're up for the challenge, because no other job could give me this kind of exposure on, you know, at the age of, of 22, having hired people, having had to fire people, having to had, have conversations about performance, having to have incorporated a company in a country where they still use fax machines, you know, having to done, do, you know, legal accounting, taxes, 
build an actual company, get users, marketing, SEO. There's so many facets to it that I don't think any other job could give you this exposure. And, and I think you know one thing that one of our YC partners said that stuck with me is that if you go into this looking at it as a learning experience and you can afford to have you know these years of your career as a learning experience, you can't lose no matter what happens to the startup. And, and this is not to say that I'm aiming for the startup to fail, but if it does, let's be realistic. A lot of startups do. If you go into this looking at it as a learning opportunity, you cannot fail because you will learn from it. And I think that's something that when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I like to remind myself of that I'm fortunate to be complaining that I'm, you know, in the process of raising my two million seed round and I didn't close it in one day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, do, I wish I had the, the kind of foresight and maturity at, at your age. And uh, I would, uh, I, I often tell, uh, uh, you know, younger founders that, you know, they, sh- they should take bigger risk because you, you don't have anything to lose. Uh, yeah. So, 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 you know, great advice. And, uh, you know, I, 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 at Nirali uh, Zaveri from, from Frizz, which is another Y Combinator startup. And she, uh, and she told me that, you know, uh, uh, female founders should should get the equal opportunity to to start up. Uh, uh, but you know, what advice would you give to female founders who are trying to build a company and you know uh, fundraise successfully? Yeah. So t- to be completely honest, actually, fundraising as a female founder has been harder than I expected. I have never once been the type of person to think that being a female founder or being you know a woman in STEM or when I was doing finance jobs that it was ever any sort of disadvantage. If anything. I thought I had a slight edge because I brought a different perspective to the table. And when it came to, you know, especially being a startup founder, I think oftentimes women leaders can be slightly more empathetic and about it's, you know, also about that agreeableness. Sometimes I don't think I have an iron fist. I like to think that, you know, I, I let people also grow in their own environments. Um, but when it has come to fundraising, I actually did some analysis because I was deep into my fundraising meetings. I thought, is it just me or like, all my investors, women. And I did an exercise to look at, you know, the meetings I've done, 75% of which were with men or men leading an investment. In terms of the amount of um, investors on my cap table who'd actually invested, that was 16% men. And in terms of capital amount, that was led by 3% of men. So what I looked, what the numbers were telling me is that actually women tend to take a bet on me more and they tend to write me larger checks. But interestingly, of our friends and family round, that was 100% men. So what that also told me is that the men that know me in, in my life, whether that's advisors or mentors, they trust me. But when it comes to perhaps raising from a, a man or a woman, all things equal, and of course, these are generalizations looking at the numbers. We have some incredible men on our cap table too. But looking at the numbers, you can't hide behind the fact that 3% of, of our investments have been led by by men. So I think that's been a really interesting thing for me to try and, and digest and, and understand what that means. Is it because it's the skincare industry and women instantly understand how big a market that is? And maybe men just don't get it, which is, is fair enough. We acknowledge that this is a more female focused um, business, although men have skin too, so they should be taking care of it. But you know, I think that's been an interesting thing to navigate. And I don't know what biases quite play into in, into fundraising, to be honest, because I do also acknowledge that I am a young founder and I am also a minority female founder. I'm not what a typical founder looks like. And again, in many cases, I think that's been an advantage of mine and I've never wanted to play that card. 
Um, but I do think that there is unconscious bias involved in a lot of these decisions. And especially, I, I do understand from an investor standpoint that, you know, a lot of it is about pattern matching. And if you've always made investments in a certain space and, and you know, our, our business, it's compounded by the fact that no one's really done what we're doing before. No one has made an entire industry vertical combining social payments and data in any industry. So it's not a tried and tested model. Individual pieces of it are, but no one's tried to do it together. And I think that scares people. I had an investor pass on me last week because they were like, sorry, if you want to work in the skincare space, you should make some skincare products. <laughs> you know, like, what can I say to that? That's not that's not the vision that, that we're going for. We are being more ambitious with it. So, um, you know, I, I think that's been interesting. But for me, the important thing is to stay true to myself. And it comes back to like, you know, the, the perspective that I have on it. Yes, for me, fundraising is a way to have my impact on the world because it's a way for me to grow my company. But at the same time, I will not cut corners on who I am as a person. I'm not going to start lying about my metrics or start being more aggressive and not taking meetings with investors or try and apply false pressure because that's that's not who I am as a person. And I would rather stick with the money that I've raised, which will give us our eight-year runway anyway, and we keep building at the rate that we have been bootstrapping in a scrappy way than me having to shift on my morals and, and behave in a way that I, I don't condone as much. So I think that's been a, a really helpful way for me to get through it is, to, you know, grinded it out through to a position where I'm not desperate anymore. We have raised enough to keep the company alive, which is the key priority. And anything beyond this is, is a bonus and is going to accelerate the growth and, and making sure that I don't feel bad about myself as a person afterwards, because oftentimes I think fundraising does favor aggression and I'm not an aggressive person and I don't wish to be an aggressive person. All right. No, absolutely. And again, I quickly want to do the top three. What's a favorite business book? It's not exactly business, but it's kind of around success. Uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love that book. And, uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started clear, I know it's, it's uh, a too short a time period, but what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I would have had more confidence in myself from day one. Um, we had a lot of imposter syndrome going into it. I won't go into the whole story, but the reason we deferred Demo Day is because me and my co-founder didn't think we could code the app, but we deferred. We decided that we would just build it from the ground up and that was the best decision we made, but we didn't have the confidence to do that back in January. Okay. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I got to say Calendly. Yeah, no, I, I love Calendly. It's uh, been one of my favorite apps. It saves um, so much time. It accounts for time zones. It's so, so clever. <laughs> yes, absolutely <laughs> it is. Um, uh, you, you know, Anna, what is, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Clear? Yeah, so as I said, I love responding to people on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a great way to, to connect with me. Feel free to just send a connection. And also, um, if you want to check out our website, there should be an email there, or you can email me directly at ahana at getclearapp.com. I will put that in the show notes. Anna, thank you so much for taking your time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you, Rohit. It was lovely to chat with you as well. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.